Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, May 27th, 2022, the 492nd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Before we get started, as always, I must remind you about the great American patriot, Mike Lindell, and his great American manufacturing company, MyPillow. You can go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code reasonable to receive up to 60% off items all across the MyPillow.com store. They also have a bunch of buy one, get one free offers. And when you order, you will get a free gift, Mike Lindell's autobiography. So go ahead, make your life more comfortable. MyPillow.com, promo code reasonable. You'll be supporting this show. You'll be supporting Mike Lindell. And you will be supporting a great American manufacturing company. Once again, I want to thank everybody who has continued to subscribe to the Substack and donate on Substack. You are legitimately making it possible for me to continue to do this show the way I have done it now for a long time and actually survive because it ain't that easy when you say all the no-no things in the middle of a cancel culture where censorship controls everything. Now, I haven't talked much this week on the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and I mentioned the other day that the reason I didn't want to do that is because I didn't think that we actually knew much about the facts of this incident. And I think that the conversation that we always end up having right after one of these shooting incidents is obviously very stupid and misses the point entirely, and it misses the point entirely on purpose. The Democrat Communist Party is obviously using each and every one of these events to push the gun-grabbing narrative. They want to end the Second Amendment. They want to disarm the citizenry. And yet people on the internet and people in the media encourage this conversation to be about whether or not a certain person or a certain point of view 
cares about the life of children. The media frames this issue as people who don't want gun violence to happen anymore against people who are obsessed with their guns. And that is not at all what the issue is about. The issue is about stripping a populace of a fundamental human right as guaranteed in the Constitution. And of course, that's the right to self-defense, both individually and as a society against an overreaching government like the one we have now. The government we have now is not even legitimate. They do not hide the fact that they are completely committed to a globalist agenda. Biden ran on saying build back better. Build back better is not the Joe Biden agenda. It's the World Economic Forum agenda and World Economic Forum partners around the world were saying build back better just the same as Joe Biden was. All of the people in the illegitimate government nonetheless swore an oath despite their illegitimacy to defend the Constitution of the United States. And what they are doing is trying to destroy the Constitution of the United States. Again, very few of them are legitimate in the first place. But regardless of that, anyone who is pushing this stuff along is blatantly breaking their oath to the Constitution. And they are doing this in service of a global agenda that calls for the disarming of the people, particularly the American people, because we have the Constitution that says, hey, commies, you can't do that. The Constitution is the law of the land. The answer is only no. That is not an extreme position. And that position is not opposed to wanting to protect children. The right to self-defense is about protecting children and protecting yourself, protecting your family, protecting your community, and ultimately protecting your country. And when you have illegitimately installed politicians pursuing a global agenda, those politicians are working on behalf of a government that is not the government of the United States of America. This is exactly the scenario the founders were imagining when they wrote the Second Amendment. The other side is arguing for the disarmament of the American people at the behest of an illegitimate government serving globalist powers. The answer is only no. And it doesn't matter how much they emote or how mean they say you are or stupid these people think masks work. You don't have to take them seriously. The answer is only no. So these incidents happen and there is an uproar. Everybody arguing about guns. The communists want to take the guns. Americans want to protect their right to keep their guns and have the government recognize that right because it is a right. It is the Second Amendment of the Constitution. If the communists want to change that, go ahead and begin winning legitimate elections so that you are supported by the people. And if the people support a change to the Constitution, well, there's a process for that. Go ahead and follow the process. And when the country, a majority of the country, agrees to give up the guns, well, then I guess you've won. Until that point, the answer is only no. So we get immediate uproar. And then the facts become obscured and people stop caring about the facts. They separate into their camps. All the communists believe whatever the television says, even if the television tells them two completely opposite things. And the television, in fact, is doing that. And since the television and social media set the parameters for the conversation within the censorship bubble, you can guarantee that what follows will be a bunch of mindless bickering where no one is actually discussing anything relevant. And it's impossible to discuss anything relevant when you don't know the facts of the incident. And this applies to virtually every shooting that we have ever witnessed. How do we still not know much of anything? 
about the Las Vegas massacre. The biggest shooting in history. It disappeared in a few days. The story doesn't add up at all. It makes absolutely no sense. They found a patsy, Stephen Paddock, and they put a ban on bump stocks. And we were told, hey, it's all good. That's all that happened. Some uh, some crazy guy lost his mind, went up to a hotel room and shot up an entire concert all by himself. And it was because of bump stocks. And everybody said, hey, all right. We still don't know the truth about how John F. Kennedy was assassinated. So we're used to not being told things. It's comfortable to just assume that the authorities have given us as much as we need to know. There's nothing else worth knowing. And now we can move on with our lives. But the media coverage for this Texas thing has been atrocious on almost every element of the story. We've been told multiple things by the media. And then there are other things being expressed by eyewitnesses that discount even the media's news story. They're having a hard time accounting for the timeline. We're told that Ramos shot his grandmother, drove his grandmother's truck toward the school, crashed in a ditch, got out, headed toward the school, walked around the school for 12 minutes. We were initially told that he had exchanged fire with a peace officer at the school. Then we were told there was some engagement with an officer or someone at the school. Then we were told that never happened. Initial reports said that the shooter had been taken into custody. Then we were told the shooter was killed. We were told that the police got there. They held parents off from actually trying to go in the school and take out the shooter. Eventually, a tactical group from Border Patrol arrived, and all of that happened while the shooter was in the school, apparently still shooting. It's all a mess. There were good guys with guns, just normal civilians who wanted to go in and save children, and they were held back by police. So police have guns. The shooter has a gun. The shooter is a bad guy with a gun, right? There's good guys with a gun that want to go in and take out the shooter. But the police, the other guys with guns, have a stand down order, apparently, and they restrained parents and people from going in and trying to deal with the situation until the negotiators got there. The police are supposed to be among the good guys with the guns, but apparently not in this case. Why were they stood down? Who knows? Hopefully we'll find out. Now, the mainstream media has been capitalizing on interviews with people we are told are parents or other school children. And all of them are very, very strange to me. And, you know, I know this is probably going to put some people off me playing these clips and uh, casting doubt on them. I'm just trying to tell you what I see and what I hear and how weird I think this whole thing is. And you can call me cynical or crazy. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And I understand there's that possibility, but I want to share it with you nonetheless. So I want to play a couple of clips here. The first one was from, I believe, the night of the incident. This is a Fox News reporter who was in Uvalde uh, working as a correspondent appearing on the Tucker Carlson show. And if you want to see the original clips of any of these, you can go to t.me slash I'm your moderator. I've posted all of them in the info stream. This clip is about a minute long, but listen to the interaction between the reporter and a child who was supposedly a few feet away from this massacre just a few hours earlier. Now, Allie, thanks for coming back on. What have you learned? Well, Tucker, we learned that this was during recess. This little third grade boy telling me that he saw this gunman actually fire shots. And he said, I know that this guy's serious about hurting people at this point. He said he didn't know what to do. They basically all ran back into the classroom and kind of took cover. Take a listen. So you heard the gunshots? Yes. What were you thinking? Um, I was thinking like, oh, shoot, it ain't, 
he ain't like he's he's not like kidding. He's he's actually not afraid to shoot someone. Are you scared to go? You don't. Do you have to go back to school now? I think you're out of school, right? I do not want to go to school because I'm traumatized now. So how close to the shooting were you? What? How 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 far would you say it happened from you? I say like a couple um a couple feet. You know, Tucker, this little boy, he's telling me that he didn't think he was going to survive. And to, to be that young and to have that feeling, it's a really, really tragic thing tonight. So when I heard that, something about it rubbed me the wrong way. I've watched it a bunch of times now. It seems like she is supplying him with the answers that he's supposed to say. Like, are you scared to go back to school now? which is an odd question already. And then the kid says with no emotion in his voice. And listen, I know overanalyzing the way a child talks might be a mistake. Again, I'm telling you, I am not certain that what I'm observing is correct. It's just odd and fits a pattern. But the kid immediately says, no, I'm traumatized now. Now, when I was in third grade, I am nearly positive that I had no idea what the word traumatized means. I understand it's a different generation. And with these elementary school teachers we have now, they probably talk about being traumatized absolutely all the time. But what kind of nine-year-old witnesses a shooting from a few feet away? And by the way, she said he heard the shots initially. And then he says he was a few feet away. Already strange. I'm just saying it's strange. Doesn't seem like the way two people would be communicating, even when one of those people is a child. But he witnesses a shooting from a few feet away. And then within a couple hours, his parent or guardian allows him to be interviewed by a mainstream media reporter. And he expresses with virtually no emotion that he's been traumatized and now he's scared to go to school. And then she cuts back to Tucker. She cuts away from the interview and she reports to Tucker that he said he didn't know if he was going to survive. Why didn't they put that in the clip that they were playing? Like, I don't want to hear the reporter tell me what the witness said. And I know that this is something that we have seen in the news for decades. It's still ridiculous. Now, here's another one. Anderson Cooper is interviewing a guy who CNN says is a parent of one of the children in the school. Again, he may well be a parent of the children in school. That's not the part I'm trying to cast doubt on. I just don't believe anything they're telling me because everything they have told me so far has been wrong. There is absolutely no reason to trust anything about what the mainstream media says, including who they tell you is a parent of one of the kids who was killed. That's not my fault. That's their fault. Okay. The media has burned their trust to the ground and you can look back. There's a great clip of the uh, health expert, communist Leanna Wen, being interviewed by Jake Tapper in the aftermath of the Boston Marathon massacre. And people have theorized that she's simply a crisis actor and basically just a person who is paid to repeat the slogans and seem like an expert while doing so. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. It's just very strange. Again. It's not my fault for doubting the media. They abuse every situation that exists in reality and they make up news that does not exist in reality. These are the same people who have fed us former members of the FBI and the CIA for the last six years now as they've pitched the Russia hoax, the Russia collusion hoax. That was completely false. It was false the entire time. CNN had Stormy Daniels and Michael Avenatti on television 24-7. Avenatti is now in prison because he's a fraud, and Stormy Daniels owes Donald Trump hundreds of thousands of dollars. So please understand that it is not my intent to disrespect any children that were killed and their families at all. 
But listen to how Anderson Cooper handles this interview. For us, she never got in trouble in school. Like, I just want to know what she did to be a victim. <laughs> and she loved being a big sister. You have a three-year-old son yes. named Zane. We have a three-year-old son named Zane. Ask for his sister every morning when he wakes up. Just he doesn't know at this point, I assume. We've we've informed him that his sister is now with with the God, with the God, and that and that she will no longer be with us. And of course, he just cried. I mean. He's three years old, and it's still emotional for him to even process. So there's another interview of that same man with CBS News, and he tells virtually the same story. The part that I want to make sure you notice is Anderson Cooper basically prompting the story about the son Zane and the things Zane did. And that's a story that this man has told in other interviews as well. But I think it's kind of hard to deny that Anderson Cooper is prompting this man to express himself in certain ways. And when you watch the video, there's this really uncomfortable and unnatural vibe between Anderson Cooper and this man. Anderson Cooper quite clearly calls him the father of this little girl. And you can find plenty of other sources that list this man as her father, people.com, ABC, New York Times. But then there's this other video. Ten-year-old Amory Jo Garza was another fourth grader at Robb Elementary. She was a real good student. She was a very good daughter, friend, uh, very playful, very silly. Amory loved to draw, do science experiments, and make people laugh. She wanted to be a YouTube star one day. She was a perfect daughter, yeah. She was a perfect daughter. When he heard about the shooting, Alfred Garza III raced to the school. While waiting for news about his own daughter, Garza says he tried to comfort the children who did manage to get out. Now, that clip is from the Today Show, and they have the article that accompanies that clip on their website. They list Alfred Garza III as Amory Joe Garza's father. Both of these people are being called her father. Now, I have seen in one place that it calls Angel Garcia, uh, Garza her stepdad. So maybe there's a simple explanation for all of it. But there is directly conflicting information about who this little girl's father is in mainstream news sources. Once again, is this my fault? Hey, maybe. Maybe it's wrong. Maybe there is a sensible explanation for all of this. But the media's responsibility is to get this stuff right. And we have major mainstream outlets interviewing two different people saying both of them are this little girl's father. And I want to play one more interview. This was on CNN today. This is apparently the shooter's mother. I have no words. I have no words to say. I don't know what he was thinking. He had his reasons for doing what he did, and please don't judge him. I only want the innocent children who died to forgive me. What do you tell their families? Forgive me. Forgive my son. I know he had his reasons. What reasons could he have had? To get closer to those children, instead of paying attention to the other bad things, I have no words. I don't know. So the shooter's mother said he had his reasons. Please don't judge him. And what in the world could CNN possibly mean by that? Now, again, all of this might be completely legitimate and completely explainable. But if it is. Why is it so strange and so inconsistent? And why is the rest of the story strange and inconsistent in all of the same ways? It's been three days and even the police in Uvalde can't get their story straight. I did a live stream with my friend CanCon the other night and we discussed some of this and he made some great points 
about what this kid was equipped with when he went into the school and began shooting. He had Daniel Defense ARs that start around $1,500 each. Apparently, the models that he had in particular were $1,800 and $2,100. So that's like $3,900. He had body armor, which would be another four to $800. One of the rifles appeared to have an EO tech optic. That's another four to 600 bucks. And then apparently 700 rounds of ammo, another three to $400. So we're talking about a kid having 5,000 or $6,000 worth of equipment that he had acquired to execute this school shooting that he had been talking about online. Apparently the kid had been fired from his job. How in the world does he have that kind of money to spend on all of this new equipment? And maybe the idea here is that all the narrative chaos may be doing exactly what they want to do, which is distract people, get people caught up in the minutiae, trying to make sense of a story that does not possibly make sense in any way they're telling us. And everything else kind of just goes by the wayside. Joe Biden is going to show up in Uvalde on Sunday, and that will get them through the Monday news cycle, most likely still on this subject, still in the minutiae, still with a completely incoherent story. But this isn't the only weird stuff going on in Uvalde. And that's what makes the story even weirder. Back in April, the Uvalde mayor was making news because he was making a public fuss about the immigration situation at the southern border. And Uvalde is about an hour or so away from the border. So this is April 9th from the Center Square, Texas website. Uvalde mayor powder keg about to blow up at southern border after Title 42 ends. Instead of deporting mostly single young male illegal immigrants, Customs and Border Protection agents are releasing them into Texas communities, one of which is the border town of Uvalde, located roughly 80 miles southwest of San Antonio. Uvalde Mayor Don McLaughlin said CBP agents told him to expect up to 150 people to be released daily into his community, Fox 29 News reported. A minimum of 150 people released a day, 365 days a year, translates to 54,750 people being released into a town with a population of roughly 17,000. In a March 24th interview with Fox News' Tucker Carlson, McLaughlin said they're releasing in Eagle Pass, Texas right now, which is 63 miles from Uvalde. They are releasing 700 people a day into the community. Same thing in Del Rio, over 500 a day. It's a powder keg that's going to blow up and this government has no regard for American citizens. Nearly a year earlier, Uvalde began being inundated with crime and dangerous car chases stemming from law enforcement, chasing cartel operatives and traffickers, transporting people and drugs through the streets of the relatively peaceful border town, McLaughlin said. One year ago, last April, McLaughlin told Carlson what Uvalde residents were experiencing was like the wild, wild west. We have car chases on a daily basis. We have immigrants jumping off trains. We have them coming into towns in our schools. It's just nonstop. We're dealing with young adult males. A lot of them have criminal records. As of February 2021, 97 sexual predators have been caught in the Del Rio sector, which Uvalde is a part of. Last year, CBP and law enforcement apprehended a record number of repeat offenders, including sexual predators who'd entered the United States illegally. As of last August, nearly 8,700 criminals were arrested at the southern border within a 10-month period, including sex offenders. Last November, CBP reported that 27% of arrested illegal immigrants were repeated offenders with many other criminal convictions. These numbers and percentages are estimated to only represent a fraction of the number of criminal illegal immigrants coming through. The majority of them evade capture, law enforcement agencies estimate. Last May, McLaughlin told Carlson his town was dealing with 13 to 15 police chases per week. We're having to lock down our schools about once a week, he said, because almost every one of those cars has armed occupants. 
But now with Title 42 being rescinded, McLaughlin says what Uvalde residents will experience is going to be total chaos. Title 42 is a public health emergency that allows Customs and Border Protection agents to quickly process and deport illegal immigrants under a public health emergency. It was used by the Trump administration to slow the spread of the coronavirus. The Biden administration announced it was ending May 23rd. And of course, that was put off by the courts. But that was Monday. And we'll get back to that in just a second. McLaughlin told the Daily Caller, we might as well go back to the Wild West days because nobody has a plan to move these people out of the city. The border crisis has passed, he says. This is an invasion. McLaughlin has been sounding the alarm ever since the border crisis began. Last May, he warned that the crisis at the southern border is far worse than many people realize, and it's going to destroy my town, our state, and this country if we don't do something about it now. Uvalde is comprised mostly of people of Hispanic origin, and it's been a peaceful place for most of our lives, but not anymore. Now, with no judgment whatsoever to any of the illegal immigrants, right? Just leave that part off the table. I'm not saying that there's no judgment to be made on any of that. All good. Just let's put it aside. Having three times the number of citizens in your town arrive from a foreign country in one year is utterly insane. Assimilation is impossible. There's no way that public resources can provide even standard public services if your town becomes four times as large in one year and three quarters of the people there are not American citizens. The situation is nuts. And then you add in all the crime that that has brought with it. Car chases nearly every day, car chases. And the people in the cars are armed. And the people in the cars are cartel members trafficking drugs and humans. So that's the backdrop for what's going on in this town. So Monday, Title 42 was supposed to go away. And Joe Biden's invasion at the southern border, the slave trade that has been operational at the southern border, was going to have a whole new wave. That's not a conspiracy theory. That's not something I'm making up. That's something that has been widely reported. But here's something you may have missed on Wednesday. This is a statement from the Department of Homeland Security. DHS statement on safety and enforcement following shooting in Uvalde, Texas, May 25th. U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement and U.S. Customs and Border Protection remind the public that sites that provide emergency response and relief are considered protected areas. To the fullest extent possible, ICE and CBP do not conduct immigration enforcement activities in protected areas, such as along evacuation routes, sites used for sheltering or the distribution of emergency supplies, food or water, or registration for sites for disaster-related assistance or the reunification of families and loved ones. That's a lot of different sorts of activities, but let's move on. ICE and CBP provide emergency assistance to individuals regardless of their immigration status. DHS officials do not and will not pose as individuals providing emergency-related information as part of any enforcement activities. The site of the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas is a protected area. To the fullest extent possible, ICE and CBP will not conduct immigration enforcement activities there so that individuals, regardless of immigration status, can seek assistance, reunify with family and loved ones, and otherwise address the tragedy that occurred. So what they're saying is they're not going to enforce immigration in Uvalde because they want illegal immigrants to be able to reunite with their families, right? They're not going to run enforcement activities on American citizens. So they are referring directly to the activities of those illegal immigrants. And they're saying specifically, regardless of immigration status, they can seek assistance, reunify with family and loved ones, and otherwise address the tragedy that occurred. So we have an area with a ton of new crime and cartel activity creating that crime, a place that used to be a 
peaceful town, 17,000 people, not very big. We have a mayor that was speaking out about all of that, making national television appearances, talking about the fake administration's disastrous immigration policies and how it was affecting American citizens, most of whom, by the way, are Hispanic in those border towns. We have the thwarting of the fake administration's planned expiration of Title 42. We have a shooting where all of the explanations are completely inconsistent and completely incoherent. And then we have on Wednesday, the Biden administration's Department of Homeland Security announcing that ICE and Customs and Border Patrol won't be enforcing immigration laws in Uvalde while they're dealing with this tragedy. We even have a police chief that said the officers didn't go to confront the shooter because they were worried about getting shot. And for more on all of this, there's actually a great piece by uh, Political Moonshine. Just go to politicalmoonshine.com. And he goes far deeper into this. And then Tori says, Tori Maras on her channel last night was posting some really interesting information. And in Moonshine's piece, he kind of breaks down some of that. He says, more problematic to everything evidenced here too. Consider this as put forth by Tori Maras last evening as sourced from her Telegram account. The short of it pertains to Oasis Outback LLC. Outback Bar, Restaurant, and Sporting Goods Store, which apparently lent money to Ramos before selling him his weapons pictured above. Oasis Outback LLC apparently has received substantial funding from the Small Business Administration in the amount of $342,084. In reference to the use of shell corporations, Maras contends that Oasis Outback LLC is also WRK incorporated and that federal contractors are implicated while duplicate loans appear to constitute fraud. And she has the supporting images from all of that. He writes, respective to Uvalde's small stature as a town, Maras further examines an anomalous and extraordinary flow of federal funds to various entities within it, including billions to make F-16 aircraft. And he goes further through some of Tory's posts. She writes, Maybe this is another production to prelude emotional tugs for guns. Regardless, the money, the history, and the insane money for that small, tiny, 20,000 resident town, trillions plus, tells you all you need to know. And I wonder if she meant billions there, but that dispute is mostly irrelevant. Either way, that's some serious money, and there is definitely something else going on behind this shooter story. And so I hope that all of that wasn't too out there for people, but we cannot just get lost in the television and social media arguments about the minutia of this case and continue bringing it back to whether or not the communists are allowed to take everybody's guns. There is something clearly much bigger going on in Uvalde, Texas. Now, along the same lines, this is from Breitbart today. Biden program meant to fast track asylum finds 99% of illegal aliens have invalid asylum claims. More than 99% of illegal aliens enlisted in President Joe Biden's dedicated dockets program in Los Angeles, California, are found to have invalid claims for asylum and are subsequently ordered deported. New data reveals. In May 2021, the Biden administration started the dedicated dockets program as a fast track asylum process that promises to get border crossers through federal immigration courts within 300 days. Data from the University of California, Los Angeles, that's UCLA, Center for Immigration Law and Policy reveals that in the city's dedicated dockets program, just 1% of border crossers are found to have valid claims for asylum. Meanwhile, more than 99% of illegal aliens are found not to have valid asylum claims and thus are being deported from the United States. More than 72% of illegal aliens ordered deported had failed to show up for their asylum hearings. 
The bombshell data comes as the Biden administration has deployed an expansive catch and release network where more than 954,000 border crossers and illegal aliens have been released into the United States interior from February 2021 to April 2022. And that number is the low end estimate. Those border crossers and illegal aliens are released on the promise that they will check in with immigration and customs enforcement and show up to their asylum hearings. The UCLA data suggests very few show up to their hearings. Although more than 1.2 million illegal aliens have been ordered deported from the United States by a federal immigration judge, former acting ICE director Thomas Holman told Breitbart News that the Biden administration is deporting just one illegal alien for every 100 illegal aliens successfully crossing the southern border. The most historic illegal alien crossings we've ever seen in the history of this nation. In that same year, ICE had the lowest number of removals in the history of the agency, Holman said. And you have to understand what this particular issue is. The asylum claim is the entire basis for the fake compassion that the Democrat Communist Party and its supporters are showing when they discuss illegal immigration. They say these people are escaping gang violence. They even say they're escaping climate change. But the idea is that they can't survive in their home country, so they must be welcomed into America no matter how many of them come and No matter whether or not they go to an actual border checkpoint and declare asylum there as the process dictates, they bring illegal immigrants over with the human traffickers, literally slave runners, and then they claim asylum so they can be released out into the country. And the fake administration claims that their system for processing asylum claims is what guarantees that everything's working right. Except as Donald Trump noted many times over the last six years, they actually don't go show up to ICE and say, hey, am I allowed to keep staying? They just stay. 99% invalid asylum claims which means if 2 million illegal immigrants come in and claim asylum, only 20,000 of those claims are legitimate. But nonetheless, the fake administration invites all 2 million people into the interior of the United States. In fact, they are busing and flying them around the country in the middle of the night so no one realizes what they're doing. They are taking humans from human traffickers at the southern border and shipping them around the country where they will exploit their labor and their political power. And they're claiming all of it is okay because these people are refugees and asylum seekers. And when the number of invalid claims is 99%, that's not a mistake. That is the fake administration lying to you to protect the slave trade. There's all sorts of money flowing through that border. Big business, the drug and human trafficking trade. The cartel is running that business. The United Nations migration is running that business and affiliated NGOs are running that business. We know who funds those NGOs. And once again, absolutely all of this tracks directly with the globalist agenda. Globalists don't want borders. They want to be able to move populations around to where they decide those populations are needed for their labor and for their political power. It's not because they want to do all these people a solid. And it really is about time we all begin to recognize this for what it is. And so we'll just have to see how things play out with the Uvalde connection and what's really going on in the background. But it's important to notice that no one can get their stories straight here. Not the police and other authorities and certainly not the media. And combined with the fact that the cops stood down and did not pursue the shooter for like 40 minutes. 
it's hard to believe that anyone involved with this situation beyond the parents was operating with the purpose of saving children's lives and stopping an active shooter. And since they can't explain it in any coherent way, what else are we supposed to think other than something else was at play here? And one other strange twist before I move on. Today, the Gateway Pundit reports that two unnamed boys the same age as the shooter were arrested in 2018 for planning a Columbine-style shooting at a Uvalde school in 2022. So they were planning in 2018 for an incident in 2022. Two boys at the time, 13 and 14, were arrested in 2018 for planning a Columbine-inspired attack on a Uvalde school in 2022. The boys who were not named at the time of their arrest would be 17 and 18 now. Earlier this week, an 18-year-old young man shot and killed 19 students and two teachers at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde. At the time of the teen's arrests, Uvalde Chief of Police Daniel Rodriguez said that a Morales Junior High School student and a former Morales student were planning to conduct the attack four years from then. And the school district at the time released a statement. Our school district is committed to the safety and education of all our students, and we want to clearly communicate about safety issues when they arise. One of our Morales junior high school students was experiencing a crisis. Upon rendering aid and support, the student revealed a future plan to conduct a school shooting in the year of 2022. With the type of detailed information that was revealed by the student to law enforcement and confirmed in their investigation, the student has been arrested and will not be returning to our school. Our school district has a strong partnership with our local law enforcement agencies and emergency responders. They share our commitment to student safety, and we are working closely with them to ensure all information is thoroughly evaluated and our school is as safe as possible. We ask our parents to assist us in reminding their child or children of the importance of telling a staff member if they ever become aware of a plan to harm individuals or of a weapon at school. The Stop It app may be utilized by parents or students to inform administration of any inappropriate behavior. In this way, we are all working together to keep our schools safe. And then there's this from Vice yesterday. Uvalde SWAT team bragged about training at schools on Facebook. Like many cities in America, Uvalde, Texas has a SWAT team. According to a Facebook post from 2020, the Uvalde SWAT team trained specifically in area schools and they share the post. The Uvalde Police Department SWAT will be visiting the Uvalde CISD schools, Uvalde Classic Academy, and local businesses throughout the day, said a Facebook post on February 11th, 2020. The purpose of the visits is to familiarize themselves with layouts of our schools and businesses. SWAT members will be in full tactical uniforms, and we did not want the public to be alarmed when seen. We appreciate the cooperation of all schools and businesses involved. We will continue working together to make Uvalde the safest place to live. It's unclear if the Uvalde SWAT team was present at Robb Elementary School when it was attacked by a gunman who killed 19 children and two teachers. According to an Associated Press report and social media footage, Uvalde police milled outside the school during the massacre, brandished tasers and prevented parents from entering the school. Onlookers present shouted at the police, go in there, go in there, according to the AP report. At least one of the parents who begged police to go inside later found out his child was killed in the massacre. According to police reports and witness accounts, both of which are pretty spotty, the gunman fought with a so-called school resource officer before entering the building and barricading himself in a classroom. He was in the school for around 40 minutes. The standoff ended when customs and border patrol agents assembled at the scene, breached the classroom and killed the gunman. It's unclear where Uvalde's SWAT team was during those 40 minutes or when the border patrol tactical unit ended the shooter's life. Uvalde's chief of police and city hall did not respond immediately to vice's request for comment. So just another very strange thing. 17,000 person cities are not big enough to have made it difficult for people to arrive and immediately address the situation. And the situation was not addressed. This entire story is crazy. And I did not mean to take this long with it. But hey, that's what happened. 
So I want to discuss election fraud. I mentioned earlier in the week that Greg Phillips from True the Vote had been discussing action that was being taken in Arizona. And here is some more background on that. This is a little clip from yesterday on OAN. This is Dan Ball interviewing Gary Snyder, who is running for Arizona State Senate. We've got the sheriff admitting we've got search warrants served. We've got these folks that are involved with nonprofit groups being served. What do you know about the Fuentes case getting canceled right around the time 2000 Mules came out? I thought there was evidence against this guy. We were actually in court the day of. She uh, obviously at the time was pleaded not guilty and wanted to take it to trial. After we got done with the 2000 Mules, a few days later, um, she cheated her uh, plea two days before her court. So instead of going to trial and saying not guilty, the plea itself, it's changed. She took the plea bargain for the attorney general that now officially is June 2nd, which is this upcoming Thursday, that she'll be in trial just to say, I plead guilty, I take the plea. So uh, originally there was, a, there was two cases previously. So uh, Alma Juarez, which is the neighbor of Guillermo Fuentes, mm -hmm. she was indicted and she took a plea bargain and she is now the state witness that turned over on Guillermo Fuentes. Ah. So Fuentes was an elected official, was also the ex-mayor of San Luis, Arizona. She was the one that was caught with uh, her hand in the cookie jar. What party say, affiliation, uh, real quick? I mean, she ran for mayor. Uh, you have to claim a party. Just wondering, what party? Uh, Democrat. Okay. So from there, uh, like I said, she had a year and a half of high-paid, high-crimes lawyers out of uh, Phoenix, so she had a total of three lawyers plus a local one, all paid by the DNC to mm -hmm. uh, stay away from this so it's not to the public. But when the 2000 Mules came out, it kind of just broke broke the D DNC. They just said, you want, let it go. We're not going to keep spending money for it to be already out there. So 2000 Mules, true to the vote, they put a lot of pressure on elected officials, a lot of law enforcement that weren't willing to stick up. And it counts legislatures here in Arizona. So we, I give them the thanks for the push because, you know, they put their time, their resources, budget of financials that our community didn't have to help secure uh, more information and help uh, with the joint task force to get these ladies. And there's much more to come. And Greg Phillips has said that some of this has come from a whistleblower that they have in San Luis, Arizona, and that people like Fuentes and others who have been arrested at this point or who have been pursued at this point have flipped on the entire organization and have begun talking about who it was who was responsible for setting up and running and probably funding this ballot trafficking operation down there. And then there's this today from the Gateway Pundit. This is Jordan Conradson. A new Maricopa County 2020 election report from Verity Vote used public records requests to discover that more than 20,000 ballots were illegally counted. Arizona's 2020 presidential election was decided by less than 10,500 votes. After numerous records requests and months of waiting for responses, Verity Vote found that Maricopa County received and counted tens of thousands of ballots after the election day deadline. This finding was not mentioned in the Arizona Attorney General's interim report on election fraud. And let's go to Wisconsin. This is the Journal Times from yesterday. Former Racine Alderman slash mayoral candidate files another complaint against the city regarding 2020 election. A conservative Chicago law firm that has been working with the Republican appointed special counsel probing Wisconsin's 2020 election has filed another spate of lawsuits challenging another aspect of that election, ballot drop boxes, that has long raised the ire of Republicans, especially since their candidate for president lost. <laughs> the Thomas More Society, however, isn't suing all the approximately 245 Wisconsin municipalities that used the absentee ballot drop boxes in November 2020, just the five largest and most Democratic leaning Milwaukee, Madison, Green Bay, Kenosha and Racine. And just to pause for a second, they are trying to give the reader the idea that this is an attack against Democratic strongholds, that this entire thing is a issue of political bias. The Republicans are just trying to create 
problems. They're upset that their candidate lost. But the connection between those five cities and the reasons why they're relevant stem from the fact that they were the greatest recipients of money from Mark Zuckerberg's Center for Tech and Civic Life. That is why they're the ones who are the target of this lawsuit and of other investigations. The firm, on behalf of a total of six residents in the five municipalities, notes that state law is silent on the use of drop boxes and asks a judge to declare them legally unauthorized and permanently barred. The complaint filed against the city of Racine came from Sandy Widener, who served on the city council from 2000 to 2020 and ran for mayor in 2017 and as a write-in in 2019. Democrats and Republicans alike largely approved of drop boxes prior to the 2020 election, and the bipartisan Wisconsin Elections Commission approved their use in the election as a way to cut down on crowds at polling places at a time when there was no vaccine against COVID-19 and public health authorities were warning that large groups, such as at polling places, could spread the virus that has so far been blamed for the killing of more than a million Americans. Now, hopefully by this point, It doesn't need mentioning that all of that is nonsense. The idea that Democrats and Republicans alike approved of the drop boxes, that doesn't say anything. The Uniparty approved of the drop boxes. The leadership from both parties approved of the drop boxes. Mark Zuckerberg and everybody else who got money from Mark Zuckerberg approved of the drop boxes. That doesn't mean there was wide approval among the people. That's what they're trying to imply. Because the leadership of both parties agreed, that must mean that the people agreed. Because, of course, the party leaders, they're representing the will of the people, even though nothing could be further from the truth. The Wisconsin Elections Commission is a target of Gableman's investigation. Those people will likely eventually be tried criminally for what they were involved with. As far as COVID goes, all of this money was disseminated ostensibly for COVID precautions, it was not used for that. Most people just kept the money when they weren't spending it on ways to help Mark Zuckerberg steal the election. And the COVID thing is nonsense. Anthony Fauci said in August of that year that people would not have any problem regarding COVID when they go to vote. He said, if you can run your errands and you can go to the grocery store, then you can show up to vote. The CDC themselves released a statement on election day in 2020, saying that even if you had an active COVID infection, you should still go vote. So all of that is nonsense. And you can see that this is some pretty thick communist propaganda here in the Journal Times. A January ruling by a Waukesha County judge that barred the use of drop boxes, except in a clerk's office, has been appealed and the legality of drop boxes is now before the Wisconsin Supreme Court, which is expected to rule on the matter sometime this summer. So that Waukesha judge deemed those drop boxes illegal, and the Wisconsin Supreme Court is going to hear the appeal. The legality of the drop boxes itself is questionable at best. And I look forward to seeing how the Journal Times is going to handle it when they are ruled illegal. Widener's complaint states that the city of Racine used unmanned ballot drop boxes in the November 2020 election and did use or may use them in subsequent elections. The city of Racine has no published policy discontinuing the city's use of unmanned absentee ballot drop boxes, although they are no longer being used. This is at least the second formal complaint Widener has filed regarding the 2020 election. In January, she and another woman alleged that the grants the city of Racine and other Wisconsin cities received prior to the 2020 presidential election constituted bribery. A Dane County judge earlier this month characterized as, quote, ridiculous, the claims that accepting grants to help fund elections constituted bribery. Of course, they're not going to investigate where that money actually went. They're just going to call the claim ridiculous and pretend that a judge agreeing means it must be true. There is nothing in state law barring private funding to help administer elections. And they say that as if that means that it's moral and right and justified for somebody to take half a billion dollars and distribute it to localities all around the country in order to increase Democrat voter turnout and the ability to commit widespread election fraud, which is exactly what happened. 
The new complaint seeks a court order banning drop boxes and a permanent injunction against cities involved to cease and desist from the use of unmanned absentee ballot drop boxes. The complaints, since they only seek action against Racine, Kenosha, Milwaukee, Madison and Green Bay, would not affect the right leaning areas that use drop boxes as often as left leaning areas. Ridiculous. The Elections Commission in February rescinded its guidance allowing drop boxes in keeping with the lower court's ruling. The nonpartisan Legislative Audit Bureau found that the drop boxes were used in at least 43 cities, 46 villages, and 156 towns throughout the state in the 2020 election. So right now, drop boxes, the use of drop boxes has been rescinded to align with the court's ruling, yet the writer of this article still pretends that there's absolutely nothing wrong with drop boxes and everything's okay and they're just going to go ahead and everything in 2020 was certainly perfect. The Milwaukee, Madison, Green Bay, Kenosha, and Racine clerk's offices did not respond to an opportunity to comment. When pressed for comment on why the group is suing only those five cities and not the dozens of other communities that use drop boxes, an attorney for the group, Eric Cardall, said in an email, the reason that the complaints are focused on the Wisconsin five cities, the Center for Tech and Civic Life, and the Wisconsin Elections Commission is simple. They were all involved in a horrific violation of Wisconsin election law, which was planned in the months of late March through June of 2020. He then claimed that those five cities knew that the unmanned absentee ballot boxes were illegal, despite the WEC advising otherwise and not addressing the dozens of other communities. Well, the dozens of other communities are irrelevant. They're going after the drop boxes. If the drop boxes are illegal in Wisconsin, then the other communities can't use them either. That part is silly. The WEC advising otherwise was one of the illegal things that the Wisconsin Elections Commission did. They didn't have the right to just change how voting works. But of course, this journalist thinks that somehow this makes the lawsuit hypocritical. Apparently, that's what we're supposed to believe. The people bringing the lawsuit are conspiracy theorists and hypocrites. Therefore, nothing is true. Cardall has been working with former state Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman on his ongoing $676,000 probe of the election. That review was paused earlier this month by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss to allow time for resolution of five lawsuits related to the probe. And that is lawfare to slow down. Gableman's investigation. Robin Voss, the speaker of the Wisconsin Assembly, who they just referenced, has said on video that there is, in fact, proof of widespread election fraud in Wisconsin. Those are his words. Much like multiple judges, outside reviews and recounts, Gableman has so far found no evidence of the kind of widespread fraud or criminal activity that could have changed the outcome of the election in Wisconsin, where Joe Biden beat Donald Trump by just fewer than 21,000 votes. That is not true. He has found overwhelming proof of that. Still, he and other conservatives continue to allege a conspiracy among Democratic-leaning nonprofits and election officials to use more than $10 million from the Chicago-based nonprofit Center for Tech and Civic Life to boost turnout in Democrat areas under the guise of safe voting during a pandemic. And it's true. That is exactly what happened. They're not alleging a conspiracy. The conspiracy is right out there. It is in public. It is widely reported. There has been plenty of reporting on where Mark Zuckerberg's money went and what it was for and then what it was ultimately used for. Money from the Center for Tech and Civic Life was distributed to about 214 Wisconsin municipalities, including many won by Trump, to pay for things including poll worker training and wages, new voting machines, ballot drop boxes, and personal protective equipment. You see, they gave the money to help with COVID, and they bought some PPE, but they also trained poll workers, hired poll workers hired election judges and trained them and paid those election judges. They bought voting machines who received all that money and they paid for the ballot drop boxes. While the state's five largest 
and most Democratic-leaning municipalities got between two and four times more money per capita than other municipalities, the center has said no municipality that asked for the money was denied it. So basically what happened was they injected a ton of money into Democrat strongholds where stealing an election would be less conspicuous. And then they were called on that fact that they had given all the money to Democrat communist areas or places the Democrat communists planned to take, like Maricopa County, Arizona, like all of Georgia. And after they were called on it, then they started distributing some money to red areas. And of course, the Thomas More Society and Phil Klein at the Thomas More Society have been busting down these election fraud doors for a year and a half now. And they have always been hot on the Mark Zuckerberg trail. So we know the crime. We know the crime was committed. We know a great many things about that crime. And people are starting to learn about them more every day, every week. 2000 Mules has been nothing but a positive so far. It is contributing to the efforts we are now seeing from law enforcement. Greg Phillips has talked about working with different sheriffs around the country. And I believe that there's a whole lot more to come. I just saw a poll today where now 55% of black Americans think that the election was stolen in 2020. So good luck with that, commies. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofi. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!